Welcome to Pedra Pearls. I'm Pedra's Associate Director of Educational Programs, Jen Dawson. I'd like to welcome you to Advances in the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis podcast. In 2020, Pedra produced a webinar and podcast series called Emerging Therapies for the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis in Children, which can be found on our website at www.pedraresearch.org forward slash education. Since that series aired, there have been many advancements in these treatment options. And in this episode, we'll discuss those advancements and the research that brought us to this point and the research that is still needed. Before we begin, it's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or the program speakers. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. And now it's my pleasure to introduce your host for this podcast, Dr. Lawrence Eichenfeld. Dr. Eichenfeld is a professor of dermatology and pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego. He's the vice chair of the Department of Dermatology and chief of pediatric and adolescent dermatology at Rady Children's Hospital. He's also a founding member and past president for the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. And now I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Eichenfeld. Well, thank you for joining us. I'm uh, really excited for us to go through um, our advances in atopic dermatitis, and it's, it's really such an, an incredibly exciting time in the field. We have a, a fabulous uh, panel with us tonight. We have uh, Minnelli Liu, who's a attending physician in the Division of Pediatric Dermatology at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, an associate professor of clinical dermatology and chief of pediatric dermatology at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. And she's also very importantly co-chair of the PEDRA Atopic Derm Psoriasis Focus Study Group. Hi, thank you so much for the intro, Larry. Um, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here and to be able to share with you what um, our group is doing. And Candris Heath is with us. Uh, Candris is assistant professor of adult and pediatric dermatology and Director of Pediatric Dermatology at Temple University. And she's also Pedra's uh, um, co-chair for the Skin of Color Focus Study Group. Candris. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Candris Heath. I'm happy to be here. And I am actually vice chair of our group. <laughs> Great. So very happy to introduce Emma Gutmanyaski, who's uh, the Waldman Professor and System Chair of the Kimberly and Eric Waldman Department of Dermatology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And she's also Director of the Center of Excellence of Eczema and Director of the Laboratory of Inflammatory Skin Disease. Excited to be here with you. And then we have a, a, a panel to sort of represent the rest of people in <laughs> pediatric dermatology. And I'm really pleased that we have three uh, pediatric dermatology fellows who are going to help us out both in terms of uh, sort of keeping us uh, keeping us honest with some questions about where we're at in atopic dermatitis. So we have Manisha Note, a pediatric derm fellow at UCSF and the Benioff Children's Hospital. 
Fernando Sanchez, pediatric derm fellow at the Hospital for Sick Children, Toronto, and Tina Ho, who's a, a, a pediatric derm fellow at Boston Children's Hospital. The three, you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. Pleasure to be joining you all today. Hi, this is Tina Ho. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's Manisha. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you all. So without further ado, let's uh, let's go into what it is we're here to do, which is discuss what's new in atopic dermatitis. And and so first of all, you know, it's been a shockingly busy time for us because very rarely in someone's career do you get four drugs approved within a two to three month period and in one disease state even more so so we've gone from um, our standpoint of having um, a, a relatively new topical several years ago approved for atopic dermatitis and a single biologic agent which of course was a breakthrough for us uh, to approval of a of topical ruxolitinib oral upadacitinib uh, uh, which is approved from ages 12 and older, uh, oral JAK inhibitor, uh, abracitinib that ha had extended adolescent experience as well as adult, as of now approved for adults, uh, trelokinumab, an IL-13 agent that has uh, recently been approved uh, also uh, in adults. And then we have continued clinical trials going on with lebrakizumab, another IL-13, that's also including adolescents in their trials. Nemolizumab, a biologic agent that uh, targets IL-31. And then new topical agents. Um, interestingly, two products that are being developed as non-steroids for atopic dermatitis, Reflumalast, which is a PDE4, and Tapinarov, which is a arrowhydrokin receptor agonist. Both of those are actually ahead in their development for psoriasis as compared to atopic dermatitis, but their big phase three trials, including kids, are in uh, process. And then just to add to this, dupilumab has had extended studies with uh, children down to six months of age. Um, so the six-month to five-year-old cohort data we have seen uh, presented at, uh, at several meetings uh, showing essentially a similar efficacy and safety within the short-term uh, um, uh, time period of the studies in that younger age group. So it's an incredibly interesting time and especially interesting time for those of us taking care of patients with atopic dermatitis in the pediatric space because there's times in which we get our download of the data and we're not going to go through much of the data details of these drugs in this particular uh, podcast tonight. But then it, we have to figure out how to translate it. And certainly the, the how things were studied, how long they were studied, the approval process, the age of the patients, the side effect profile are all very important in terms of how we sort of take away from that data and bring it uh, into the hands of our patients. And as clinicians, we have to figure out how we're gonna address these issues uh, with our, our patients. So in particular, in our new medications with the JAK inhibitors, the topical JAK inhibitor, ruxolitinib, was the first one to get its label. It, it was studied ages 12 and older. And the label, though, includes um, 
concern about findings that are seen in seen with oral jacks as well. And there's the sort of mix and match between what was seen in the studies, which was more limited, worrisome side effects, and what's been seen in oral jack inhibitors, including the non-jack one agents, other agents. So that so we'll have to deal with that with that label. And then the oral jack inhibitors, of which there are three that are well-developed for atopic term, but two that we've gotten FDA indication for, also have particularly specific boxed warnings about serious infections, mortality, malignancy, major adverse cardiovascular events, and thrombosis. And it does raise the questions in the pediatric space of whether, well, are we less concerned because we have healthier people as baseline, or in real life, is it just going to be harder because we have to talk to parents about potential long-term issues that might be associated with the drugs without necessarily having long-term data? I figure that's sort of the setup. Why don't I turn to my, my panelists? Any, any things that in terms of that, what are your sense and what questions do you have about how we're going to deal with this? So Dr. Eichenfield, you brought a really interesting point. Uh, which brings me to the first question uh, of our panel. How are physicians navigating through this black box warnings uh, on these new topicals and of the potential risk of lymphoma and cancer development while on these oral medications for severe atopic dermatitis? So I think there, there are uh, issues for both the, the topical and the systemic, and they're related, but to, to a degree, a, a bit distinct. Um, because the, with the with topical ruxolitinib, I do think the, the label was really the FDA wanting to alert people about concerns about jack inhibitors. <laughs> and the, the label is a very tough label relative to the portfolio of safety results that they got from their clinical studies, in my estimate. So in dealing with that issue with parents and families, I often like to do a two-step where I introduce the idea of it on one visit and maybe I'll write for it the next. So they can they can wrestle with it, and I, and I try to relate that, that that we're gonna have what I tend to call traffic lanes for that drug, where you know you're not supposed to use it in more than twenty percent of the body, and that's the way I would do it because if you really look at the pharmacokinetics, the bioavailability, you know if if you started to cheat on that or you know started to do it on younger kids with higher body surface area before those studies are done you might be getting systemic levels. On the other hand, in its appropriate topical use, it sounds like it's going to be incredible in terms of its trade-off to have a mid-potency topical steroid efficacy level uh, without stinging and burning and as a, non, uh, as a non-steroid. So what I do is I don't go around. I, I tell them what I actually say in my style is to say, um, but the label on this drug is incredibly shocking. That's how I, I lead it. And then I, I go through with them what it states, but then my sense of it to be somewhat reassuring. And for those of us who've been at it a long time, you know, we went through a lot of years of discussions about tacrolimus and, and pipiclimus and, and the boxed warning. Um, on the, with oral jacks, I think it's different where you really you want to get a much more of a sense of, of uh, risk benefit analysis and really shared patient decision making with the boxed warning, uh, even though the studies show, you know, jack inhibitors are much less safe. Oral jacks are much less safe in the 60 plus population. We've seen really good data cuts of that. 
and we're on the opposite end of that uh, potentially if you're using the, the one that's approved down to age 12 or in our uh, uh, young adults. But you still have to look at each patient in terms of what their, their risk factors are. Certainly family history of or, or personal history of thrombotic disease would make a big difference. And then the whole pregnancy issue is an issue with the oral jacks. Candris Manella, you have any tricks or pearls in how you handle the box warning? So I, I was thinking about this in a slightly different way. You know, I think one of the questions that comes up from parents is, well, but these are children and they're 12. So it seems so I know that you just told me that we're more concerned about the older patients, but how long will my child need to be on this? And is the potentially longer period of exposure an issue or even a bigger issue um, than, for example, for the adults? Yeah. I don't know how to answer that. Well, I think it's different for the it's different for the topical and the systemics, right? Because in the topical, at least we have in the in the one year study that was done where it was used, you know, intermittently depending upon the need, there was no evidence of either pharmacokinetic accumulation nor any change in hematologic parameters, et cetera, et cetera. And you wouldn't expect it if there's no accumulation, then you wouldn't expect to necessarily have different additive adverse uh, events. At least I'm comfortable saying that. With the orals, I think that's really an issue. And I do think it'll take time for us to get a sense of how long do we feel comfortable with continuous use with one of those small molecule jacks. I think the sense right now is that people are going to be more conservative about extended use with that as compared to with dupilumab, for instance, where dupilumabs, we now have, we have significant data of three-year, five-year, two-year, both our own practices as well as in the, the long-term the long -term studies. And Larry, so in your view for, at, at least currently, where do you draw a line then between like short-term and long-term um, oral jack use? Is that like the two-year mark, the three-year mark? Like, where does that fall in your mind? So that's a good, a very good question. Um, probably for, you know, it's probably, so with dupilumab, stylistically, um, I try to get people uh, an expectation they're going to be using it for a year to get started. We'll talk about year two. And after two years, we'll talk about whether we might try to do off-label decreased dosing, depending upon their clinical response. And, you know, I just had a, you know, a three-year anniversary, my call anniversary visit on a patient today, and they have, you know, like half of a hand of eczema on the neck, and, you know, they're not there, they don't want to, you know, <laughs> they don't want to change their, the change in life that they've had from it. I think with the oral jacks, I'll probably be going a year at a time, and then, um, and it could, in some patients, it might just be four months at a time. I, I do think that we might be doing this sort of capture there are some, you know, the, the patients I'm looking for oral jacks. First of all, there's dupe non-responders. That's one pool. There, but there might be another pool where they episodically are terrible and they might be maintained without a systemic in between. Then I might be treating them for four to six months and then see what we do. Or there are patients who, just as I said, didn't do well with uh, with dupilumab. Is a non-responder might be different. It might be a year to get started. And then I'll be looking, just like we used to with dupe to see what the cumulative experience is, both in terms of extended studies, 
and then our own, you know, buzz as we talk to each other about what our experiences are. Candris, do you have any input or comments from your perspective? Uh, sure. Just some insights on speaking with parents about tough topics uh, in general. And I think they like to know that there are options available if the current options um, are not as effective as we want them to be. Uh, with the with all of the direct to consumer marketing that's happening these days, I, I think that the uh, families want to know that we're you know up to date on these things. And we, I said, I know that there are definitely some things that are out there. I know you've been hearing about them on the blogs, and you may even have seen you know ads on TV, etc. I am aware of those things, and if it becomes necessary that we think about those conditions, we can certainly dive into the the details. That is uh, kind of how I approach it. I let them know that it's more of a kind of a treatment ladder and we will start with some things that have less, um, less risk, better side effect profile. And then surely for those kids who, who do need more aggressive or different care, then you know we can handhold through that as if it becomes possible that we have to do that. At this point, I want to turn it over to, to uh, uh, Candris, who I would like to review um, her sense of the new therapies and where we're at with atopic dermatitis through the Pedra Skin of Color focused uh, uh, study group lens. So, Candris, uh, I'd, I'd love your sense of where we're at. Oh, sure. I thank you so much for inviting me to really uh, provide some insights into this area. It is, of course, an area that I'm very passionate about. And I think really setting the stage to let everyone know, and, and you know, you're probably seeing it yourselves that. Your patient, your patient populations, uh, these number of patients with skin of color are definitely increasing more than they more than they ever have. So it is important for us to be in tune to how atopic dermatitis, um, some of the things that we're learning, really impacts uh, those with skin of color. So by the year 2023, half of the children here in the U.S. will have. Um, skin of color. And all that to say, the population is growing. When it comes to atopic dermatitis, some of the things that we've known for years, uh, they're going to have more uh, cases of severe atopic dermatitis. Um, but also some of the things that are coming to the forefront really surround um, access. So we are very excited about the atopic dermatitis drugs that are coming to market and have come to market but one of the things that I always think about is, you know, who, who actually were, who, who are the people that were enrolled in the clinical trials? And does this represent our entire population of pediatric and really adult um, patients with, with atopic dermatitis? There was a recent study in the um, British Journal of Dermatology. It was a study by Price et al. And they looked at all of the published phase two and three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials that had to do with atopic dermatitis. And, you know, over, there were 33 trials that were included, over 9,800 patients. And most of those patients in those trials uh, came from Europe, was number one on that list, so over 60%. And then um, North America was a close second to 57%. And then as we dive into the more specific uh, percentages of patients with skin of color in those treatment trials, we find that over 54, about 54% of all of those patients um, were white. 
And so, you know, and, and only 8.9% were black or were of African descent. So it really kind of is like opposite, right, of what we actually really see in our in our day to day practice. So how uh, through what lens can we look at this data? Um, and then we have a question from the studio audience, Dr. Sanchez. Hi, Dr. Heath. So you brought a really important point. I think inclusion and diversity in this disease, which is one of the most common disease in, in, in pediatric dermatology. Uh, how can we model our study designs and for us to be uh, inclusive and representative of our actual population and the trend that's uh, upcoming in the future? Uh, I think that's a great, a great question. And when we think about the patients or the subjects who actually enroll in clinical trials, they're sort of at the peak of the mountain, okay? So if the study patients are being recruited in pediatric dermatology offices, we have to think about where, well, who actually is able to land there? And the question is that, yes, patients who have uh, disparities uh, based, you know, economic disparities are less likely to get to a pediatric dermatology office. Um, and even those that finally land there, they're often um, late presenters um, as far as uh, their severity of disease and when they really should have come in. So the question is, wow, we still need to partner, I think this is, you know, Dr. Heath speaking, with primary care doctors like pediatricians to really be able to open up some of those opportunities so that we can have more diversity in our, in our clinical trials. And of course, it's not that simple. So there also research that, that shows that there sometimes is a mistrust, you know, with the medical field as it relates to research. And so I think in the uh, dermatology world and particularly pediatric dermatology and pediatricians, you know, we are great at having relationships with our, with our patients. So it is worth having the conversation to more people than you, you think that you normally would to see if they are interested. That's the only way that we can actually change the representation in, in clinical trials and also have more, um, you know, more physicians out there who do clinical trials as well um, that can talk to patients a, a, about the importance of them. So thank you so much for that, for that, um, for that question. And, you know, just a, a few more points, uh, you know, that I wanted to, to make, you know, with atopic uh, dermatitis, some of the things uh, that have been impactful that have come out over the last few years as it relates to atopic dermatitis is about what's happening outside of the exam room. So we know that some patients uh, with, with skin of color, particularly uh, black patients here in the US, you know, they're less likely to um, come from a, a high income uh, household. They're, they have a lower parental educational attainment they may uh, live more likely to live in a rented home. So I'm not saying all of these things to kind of be uh, a Debbie Downer, but to just think beyond the patient in your exam room and think about how all of these economic factors can influence how often they're able to come for their visits. If their parent has to take off from work and miss pay, then that may be a patient that doesn't really get to see you for flares as much as possible. So then that is how I um, ask patients to get more information. And I actually tailor my atopic dermatitis treatments to what they need. 
if a patient um, of any background lives between more than one home, then I may, instead of giving them a big jar of medicine, I may ask the pharmacist to divide it into two. I mean, just simple things to really try to help um, to help our patients be able to overcome some of those barriers that um, that exist. And and also a very very exciting. You know, we have Dr. Gutman, who's also going to continue to share with us on the podcast, but just really exciting, you know, edge of my seat data that talks about really some of the differences that we've been seeing clinically in patients with skin of color for years. You know, why are patients with more um, dark, darker skin tones having paragonodularis and having different presentations of their atopic dermatitis, more likely to have lichenification, or what about some patients of um, Asian descent who you, we've seen them for years where they sort of have this appearance of atopic dermatitis, is it psoriasis? And now we actually have benchtop support to say, wow, they probably are skewed to more TH17. So aha, that explains the clinical difference we were seeing in those patients with skin of color. So this is, yes, an exciting time for all of us um, who take care of kids with atopic dermatitis, but particularly with the with patients, with people who have an interest um, in skin of color, actually having that benchtop and clinical and science align, like there is, I mean, we can go from here to out of space with hopefully with being able to tailor some treatments and really fine tune it for all of our patients. Very exciting. Well, thank you, Candris. That was a that was a, a great discussion. I think we make you know we'll have to wrap our minds about what we can do better. But I, I agree that it's it's, uh, it's something that's really necessary. So let's move over to uh, Dr. Lu. So Manili, help us. You know, you you help us uh, in the Pedra group at organizing that big inflammatory skin disease uh, uh, AD uh, section. And what's your sense of where we're at with our current and research efforts, both specifically what Pedra is doing, but also what do you think we need to do in the in the pediatric derm community in this space to uh, help help us to uh, evolve our, our treatments for uh, treatments and care of atopic derm? Thanks, Larry. Yeah, so we have a, a large and very dynamic study group. We have very robust discussions, and um, I'm very grateful to be part of that and to be representing our study group tonight. Um, so in recent years, if I had to lump studies together and major themes, I would say one of them is in better trying to better understand the heterogeneous presentation of atopic derm and specific to our pediatric population. So we have um, a group of us looking at atopic dermatitis clinical morphologies and trying to see how distinct morphologic subtypes might favor one group versus another. Um, Dr. Larry Eichenfeld is leading the charge on looking at chronic hand dermatitis um, and better understanding that disease and how are we managing it and what can we do better. We've also been tackling the issue of creating a standardized minimal data set for some of our more common inflammatory disorders, including atopic dermatitis, you know, trying to figure out how we might better record our findings to facilitate clinical care and research. I think for not only our group, but as a community of researchers, a community of um, pediatric um, practitioners, pediatric dermatologists and dermatologists, I think one of the major questions going forward, as Kendris um, mentioned, is ultimately we want to know 
um, if all of the clinical differences that we are seeing in our clinic really translate to mechanistic differences that have therapeutic implications? Are there subtypes that would be better treated with one drug versus another? And so to that end, of course, uh, Dr. Getman will be, uh, is here and she's um, an expert um, uh, in the immunology of atopic dermatitis. And we also have members who are starting to look at um, immunophenotyping the various morphologies in our pediatric patients. Um, in our subgroup discussions, we've been having really, really robust discussions around the safety and side effects of these newly approved JAK inhibitors, especially with our pediatric patients, who, as we discussed, they could potentially have longer periods of exposure to these medications over their lifetimes. So those black box warnings about cancer and thrombosis, what does that mean for our pediatric patients? So we want data that is specific to children, and we want data across the on-label and off-label uses for which we might use these JAK inhibitors. Um, so as a study group, we've been starting to brainstorm about how we as PIDRA as an organization might start to collect um, this data. We've also had interest and discussions around the potential for disease modification as it relates to the, some of the co-occurring conditions in atopic dermatitis. So for example, how might having alopecia areata or asthma affect our choice of agents in our patients? And I think lastly, um, again, we need to figure out how to better record our findings in atopic dermatitis and are we recording the right things? I know as a pediatric dermatology community, our power and our wealth is kind of in our collective experience that we have with all of our pediatric patients. And how can we leverage this like very unique and um, this opportunity to answer um, these kind of clinical um, and research questions. So Manili, I have a question for you, which is the, the you know, we, we struggle with, you know, as you said, we need to figure out what, sh what we should record for AD. And I've just been, you know, as someone who can do easy scores pretty quickly now, uh, even though they're not that easy, uh, I know I can, you know, it's because I've done them repetitively. I still don't do them in clinical practice, but I've more to my practice now and for moderate severe patients in my regular clinic not in my multi-specialty clinic which is different um i still try to get a, a bsa a body surface area and essentially a global you know like a iga but the bsa it doesn't take that long to do and i find it so helpful because when we see that patient back you know I, I compare that to when i'm seeing a patient of one of my colleagues in the office who doesn't do that and, you know, when you see someone who's 37% and then they're 1%, you kind of get a clear sense of that. I mean, global scores might be useful, but, but what do you actually, what are you doing? I know we need to study what's the best way, but also when we sit down to do it from a research standpoint, we're always going to collect a lot more information because we want to do more with it. <laughs> but I'm interested, what do you do in your practice? Do you do any sort of score or global assessment label? Yeah, so this is me speaking um, as a clinician as a pediatric dermatologist, um, you know, in a, in a, in a busy um, practice. And so um, with that hat on, um, we, I, I definitely do BSA. Um, I try to do an IGA. I definitely cannot do an easy score um, in my everyday practice seeing, you know, the number of patients that we see. Um, but I am interested in, in some of the um, 
other sort of measures that have been put forth, um, like the ADCT and, and when I, aka the atopic dermatitis control tool, so the ADCT. And when I look at that, that really resonates with me as a clinician because in recent years, I have been thinking about, you know, okay, so we know what we see in the skin, but I want to know how this disease is making you feel because that's going to help me decide whether or not we want to advance treatment now that we have additional treatments. And so routinely I, I, I've been, you know, I, I ask about sleep disturbance for um, school-aged children. I ask about, you know, whether there have been inquiries from teachers or comments from teachers about their child not being focused at school or scratching a lot at school. I ask about, um, is the child able to participate in their outdoor activities that they like so much, like soccer and other activities that might make them sweat or hot or trigger um, their itching. And I ask about how the family's doing in general, um, emotionally. So tools, um, like the ADCT actually encompass some of that. And so I have wondered, you know, whether we should be more routinely, um, collecting this data in a, in a kind of a more standardized and formal way. Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea. And, and yeah, so that, that, yeah, so, you know, the, the home group, the harmonization of measures of eczema group that really helped us by standardizing the outcome measures that we have now standard in clinical trials, you know, had weighed in about long term um, and included ADCT in a second tool. But I do think that, that we should we should probably get more familiar with that. That's just a, it's a six, basically a six question assessment of eczema. Maybe that's something we should be doing. But again, it's always a challenging clinical practice when it's it's so busy. Hand dermatitis in, 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 in kids and teens, I just want to comment that, you know, my sense is, you know, most of our hand dermatitis is atopic dermatitis that involves the hands, <laughs> but we don't have the data set to say that. And hand dermatitis in some clinical studies is incredibly common. And one study was 100% of the patients <laughs> in a clinical trial uh, with one of the oral jacks had at hand eczema. And you know, I think the older you get in the population, the more you get hand eczema that may be distinct from active atopic dermatitis, but it's just something we'll need to figure out over, over time and, and certainly something that overlaps with uh, AD. Well, at this point, we'll come back to, I think, more general questions about what we need to do in the future, but this is probably a, a great time to turn it over to, uh, to Emma. And, and Emma is clearly one of our world leaders in both uh, the science and clinical work in atopic dermatitis that has helped us with our uh, helped in the development of uh, the drugs that we have and the development of other drugs in the future. So Emma, um, you're you stand out for this group partially that you see mostly adults, even though I know you do see some kids. But we really want you to help us to get a sense of where you know in the adult world you have even more newly approved drugs and you're also well aware of what the next set of medicines may be that we're that we'll have to use and so just love your perspectives on that sure so i do see probably a third of my population is children so i i i like that mix um but it's true we we have many more uh, drugs that are going to be first approved in adults and we are hoping that they will uh, go into children however i think even now um, I, I think we all are giving uh, or some of us are giving a uh, off-label um, for example uh, dupiluma for children that 
that are really severe, even under five. I know the approval is imminent, but um, when you have a child that is really severe and um, you get it approved through the insurance, and sometimes we do, I, I do give um, a to um, children uh, before the age of five. In terms of drugs that I'm excited about, I, I think I'm excited about both some orals that are coming into play. We already have approval of um, Rinvoq, Upadicitinib, that um, is approved now for 12 and up, uh, which is really exciting because we have both adolescents and adults. And I'm also excited about um, um, Abrocitinib that also got approval in adults. I'm hoping that it will also come to, to children eventually. Uh, both of these are JAK1 antagonists, so not a pan-JAK like tofacitinib, but still it targets more than one cytokine pathway, which is good on one hand because you target more uh, immune axis and you can capture more patients. On the other hand, uh, of course, it comes with some price. The safety is not as clean maybe as dupilumab is. It remains to be determined how they will be utilized, whether patients will really use them long term every day. I bet that's not the case. Probably some days yes, some days no. They will be stopping and restarting. But it does give patients, both adults and children, I think some freedom to decide if they want to take it one day, they do not want to take it another day. I know with children and adolescents, we have these discussions a lot. I think with an injection, they feel this may be for life. And sometimes it's it's nice to think that you can stop and restart um, at some point. So I'm excited about these. I'm also excited about some novel um, uh, treatments. We have now a, another IL-13 approved. The results are good, um, I think, particularly with long-term use. Uh, it remains to be determined in real life if it will perform as good as dupilumab and also if it will be able to tackle patients that fail dupilumab. It's unclear, particularly that it's a similar mechanism. Uh, and also we have others coming, another IL-13 antagonist, lebrikizumab. We have the OX40 antagonists that I'm excited about the OX40 antagonists because maybe it shows some hint for disease modification. And I think particularly in children, that's a population that we want to potentially have a free time with no disease or maybe even to switch it around, who knows. CCR4 antagonism orally, also exciting. Also potentially a hint for disease modification. We are early in the game. So I think it's very exciting times. And also we have a new topical that is now approved for 12 and up. Topical JAK1, JAK2 that also seems to work quite well. That's amazing, Dr. Gutman. Do you think we'll be able to do some skin scraping or tape stripping and choose which agent to use for therapy in the future? That's my favorite question <laughs> about tape strips. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I do think tape strips will open that avenue of potentially a personalized medicine approach, including in children where we definitely do not want to start doing uh, skin biopsies like we, we can do in adults. So we might uh, get there at some point um, when we know exactly how to, you know, design drugs for particular patients or which drug uh, to pick for um, which patient. Um, but, you know, I think we have a long road until that will happen. But I can definitely see when the drugs will be approved or many of these in like five years from now. Uh, that's my wishful thinking that we can do that. That's, that's great, Emma. Really a, 
um, a great overview of lots happening in the field. Questions from the panel uh, uh, to any of our any of our panelists or from the panel to each other. Go ahead, Manisha. I had a question for Dr. Gutman. So Dr. Heath touched on this earlier, but your work has provided some benchtop answers to some of the clinical differences we see in patients with skin of color. How do we use that information to inform more targeted treatment? Oh, that's an excellent question. So um, yeah, um, that's actually one of my passions because I, I do think patients of color have many times more severe eczema. Uh, and it's also not always so apparent, right? Uh, the skin appears like anified, but it's not erythematous. And uh, many times that eczema is overlooked because people do not know if it's their non-lesional skin, the lesional skin, it's hard to braid it. I think it also uh, causes some confusion in clinical trials, as we know. It seems that they may require maybe different dosing. We saw that also with dupilumab or altogether, maybe some different mechanisms that will work in skin of color. I think this is still uh, under investigation. But I think that will be very important to have treatments that are working well for all ethnicities and all skin colors. I think we, we definitely need to get there. <laughs> Does anyone want to take up the issue of herpes infections with systemic agents? Because I think that the independent disaster infections, right, herpes simplex infections, we deal with a lot more in pediatric dermatology. It's pretty common, certainly in our children's hospital setting. We had a lot of emergency room visits and hospitalizations for eczema herpeticum. I think this is something I think we may we'll have to keep an eye on with the especially with the oral jack inhibitors. We had, you know, mixed data with dupilumab early on, but it ended up not being uh, a, a significant issue, at least in our clinical practice. With some of the jack inhibitors, it could be that that herpes simplex and eczema herpeticum might be, but just uh, laying that out there for the, for the crowd to comment on. Manili? Yeah, I, I wanted to ask a, a follow-up question to that, which, which is, um, uh, are, are there potential reasons as, as it relates to the mechanism of action of JAK inhibitors um, that would justify kind of this, what we think or what we, what have, what has been seen um, in the increased um, rate of um, herpes zoster um, and herpes simplex reactivation? Uh, Emma, do you want to, you want to hazard a thought on that? Yeah, so I, I do think we, we need to learn more um, about this phenomena. It's very clear that it happened more in the Asian population, right, in Japanese in, in, in several studies, but it's not unique to that population. We, we do see it now also in other populations. And, and we need to also see how it will be in real life. I, I can tell you that I've seen some cases actually from my own patients that participated in the study. None of them actually stop the drug because of this. So at least in what I've seen, yes, they had a herpes zoster, but it was limited. We treated it, it went away, they continued the drug and overall it did not interfere with them being happy on the treatment. And I think that's uh, what I think we may need to see in real life, uh, if it will interfere with, you know, uh, sticking to a treatment. So far, I didn't see it. We have patients already more than two years on, on the trial. And I think that's the bottom line. Uh, but, you know, there are other side effects, you know, cancers and others that are, to me, even more worrisome than the herpes aster. I do think that the herpes, you know, in, in, in reading the data sets, it looks like the higher doses do have more 
herpes, either mm-hmm. zoster or simplex. So it probably is, you know, has to do with some degree of, of, of immune effect. Mm-hmm. Although in the, the data sets aren't, you know, it's, it's not that much of an issue. I think it just becomes an issue as you get to younger age because the herpes simplex infections are so much more common in the younger age. Mm-hmm. Fernando, you have, a, I see your hand up with a question. Yes, I had a follow-up question to that specific point. Um, so does the group think that maybe in those patients that might require higher doses in younger children, we might start with prophylaxis with everybody indiscriminately, or maybe going to be tailored on a base to case-to-case basis? Well, I think the opposite end, right, for for older folks who are going on jacks, the, the word on the street has been make sure they have their they have their zoster vaccine, you know, give them Shingrix before you start them up. <laughs> and um, I think that's a reasonable suggestion, but that's because, right, herpes zoster is more common in that age group. Um, I don't know if it'll be wholesale yet. Of course, the, the data for oral jacks is very limited, less than 12, because they're just starting down towards that. So we don't have that data, it hasn't collided. But I do point out in other venues that if you look at the, the dupilumab data, on the less than six-year-olds, the incidence of herpes infection in the placebo group as well as in the dupilumab group was actually pretty high, <laughs> uh, which just reflects the severity of that population. So it may be, you know, just more of an issue. So um, with with the herpes issue, then you know, so we see a lot of eczema herpeticum. Many of the patients that we hospitalize or that are hospitalized with eczema herpeticum, they also have really severe atopic dermatitis. Um, does the history of having eczema herpeticum or really severe herpes or, you know, does, does the history of having eczema herpeticum, does that change anyone's like view on whether a patient should, should get on an, you know, a JAK inhibitor? You know, I, I don't think so. Uh, to be truthful, um, I have to say that I have some patients with a recurrent eczema herpeticum on dupilumab. I have several of these, and I have some that I see it also with a JAK inhibitor. So I do think we need to study this phenomenon. I'm not sure it's something only specific to JAK inhibitors. I think it's not studied well enough, and we don't really understand how it is associated only with JAK inhibitors and with what JAKs in particular, if yes, and, you know, because like you mentioned, patients with AD tend to have more herpes. And uh, some of it, maybe maybe they are not controlled enough. Uh, although Larry mentioned, and it's true, it, it was seen more with the higher doses that control them better. So I, I do think we still need to learn some more. Yeah, and I do think that, you know, with uh, the dupilumab data on decreasing cutaneous infections, and you know, is, is real. And I do think that, you know, I've had patients who, many patients now, who had histories of hospitalization, and have been on extended dupilumab without without recurrence. That's an anecdote, you know, to go along with the clinical experience. So I don't think that infections are going to stop me from using a systemic, but we'll figure out in terms of the the choice of systemic as we as we as we move forward. Uh, one question that that comes up is where are we at with guidelines in kids with atopic derm? And I guess the question is, are, are we going to be quick enough from the AAD standpoint uh, to get us stuff that'll be helpful to you know, put in perspective the newer medications? Emma, what do you think of that? Do you think just let people just do their clinical practice and let guidelines evolve as they go? Yeah, you know, I, I think guidelines are only useful so far. And I think um, uh, people will need to experiment uh, these drugs uh, to some extent. Although, 
you know, I think we, we can provide some guidelines, in, but I, I do think the real life in experience will be very important. And in, in, I think papers like the uh, yardstick uh, that maybe will need to be updated. Uh, I like these papers, particularly when they are done by dermatologists and allergists to, to really educate the community. In, so something like that to me is even more useful than guidelines. Manili, any thoughts that you have in terms of other aspects of future research in terms of, you know, who should we be aligning with? You know, we're, we're a group of dermatologists on, the, uh, on, the, on our podcast today, not necessarily with allergists. I think we still go back. And even though we're talking about our older kids, we'll all see kids whose families come in with, you know, questions of food allergy in their nine month old with early eczema. You know, how do you think we can uh, approach some of the you know, with a more enlightened mentality, <laughs> some of those core issues of the first two years of life and interrelationship with allergy and who should we be working with? Yeah, I, I am a big believer in working with our multidisciplinary teams, particularly for atopic dermatitis, working with our allergists. I sense that um, in the past there, like there, there have been different approaches and sometimes there have been differences um, in, in views and in approaches, but I, I feel like at least in my experience and, and at our particular center, that we really, our services complement each other, that patients are better cared for when there is a dermatologist and an allergist, and that they're the concerns not only of the skin, but also around food allergies and environmental allergies are being cared for. So broadly speaking, yes, I, I would definitely love to see our own organization partner better with the allergy immunology community, um, whether it be clinically or um, research-wise. Dupilumab patient, remnant facial dermatitis, topical ruxolitinib, yes or no? So by background, right, the boxed warning on, I mean, the warning, the discussions of the safety in the topical ruxolitinib say that you shouldn't use it with a biologic and other topical immunosuppressive. But I'm asking the experts here what they think. Candrus, you have any thoughts on that? I would not because I have to work for a while longer. So I want to make sure that I'm making decisions that can be backed up. Um, but yes, I will initially, you know, until people have more clinical experience, kind of go with things that are more tried and true that I'm comfortable with and try to kind of navigate it so that I'm not doing something um, off-label quite so early out of the gate. Emma? Oh, so I actually have quite a lot of experience in now <laughs> since the approval in 12 and up. We we are giving quite a lot of aeroxolitinib to, to these patients, and actually it's a good solution. I have to say that I managed to keep some patients on the film up that otherwise would not have a, a stayed on it. And so far, so good. We, we have good experience when, when we managed to get it approved. You know, it's not always possible, but when we manage to get it approved, it's it's a very good solution, I think, for facial eczema. Yeah, so I do that too. I started off like in my initial, you know, week or two going, well, I guess we shouldn't. And then as long as it's within, otherwise within labeling, not 20% of the body. And if it's 12 plus, um, if I can get it for them, I think it's reasonable. Manila, you have any thoughts on that? It was an extremely compelling idea to me. I have to say my first, my, my, my gut reaction was to say what Kendra said, but now I feel like I might, I don't know yet, but I might. Um. If Dr. Eichenfell and Dr. Gutman can do it, we can definitely think about it. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Definitely. I'm so glad. To, I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> Andres, I have I have a question for you. In terms of helping us to get more, you know, just better access to patients who who we know from data are not getting not getting the access that they should. Do you do you think is are the pediatricians a target for us? Or do we just need to be just directly trying to grab patients so to minimize the disparities of care that we see in AD? I think targeting the pediatricians is important. Anytime that they have more access to be able to you know, get messages to us or um, learning how to get those difficult patients in, utilizing telemedicine um, when we can. And we know that uh, there are patients, families who may not have access to proper technology to do telemedicine. But if we enable the pediatrician's office to serve as that conduit, maybe we will be able to see some of those more difficult cases that are that are uh, difficult to reach us. So I definitely think that the pediatricians are um, a necessary gateway to increase uh, access to us. And then also, um, I mean, I think, you know, as, as, uh, as someone who works in academic centers, as a lot of us do who are on the podcast today, you know, we have a tendency to take all different types of, you know, insurance. And so we try to lower the barriers, but of course, there's just not enough of us to go around. So hopefully we can recruit more pediatric dermatologists who are also willing to go out um, into various regions that don't have pediatric dermatology and form those connections with pediatrician, pediatricians. I try to say yes when I have pediatric groups um, asking about, you know, speaking on a topic or how, how do we do this or that. And I think some of the most important slides are when I really talk about, you know, how, what do you need to say to get a patient in? How do you get our attention? If you have a difficult case, you know, what to do if you have no one in your region? And so I think those sorts of things uh, really help. But yes, pediatricians, definitely key. And use of technology, even more important. Other questions from our panel? I don't know if we specifically touch on this, but I'm wondering about this panel's experience with um, off-label use of both the topical and old jacks and ages under what it's currently approved for. You know, it's it's an interesting question. It's, it's probably not as, you know, it, it, it's, I think it shows you that the, I think the, the PEDSTERM community is more cautious, but also I think probably, you know, one of the questions we have is how do you sequence your systemic agents? And for us by history and probably by predilection, because of the safety data, most people start with dupilumab and give it a run for four to six months before they look for something else. And that takes a lot of people out of the pool. And then of course, like abracinib doesn't, didn't exist as a drug until it was approved, you know, rather recently. Obviously, eupidacitinib uh, did exist, but probably hasn't been used that much off label. Partially because as we know, it's always a lot harder for us to get stuff off label in the younger kids because usually insurance companies are really happy to go not approved by that age. And then you have to, you know, get on the phone with the medical directors to, to beg for something. So I, I think we'll be looking for more cumulative experience, both within the within studies and or as people start to do off-label, just like we did off-label Doopy for a while before we got the, the core studies out. So at this point in the podcast, I really want to turn to our, our younger crew here and our fellows who are part of the panel. 
And so I want your sense, you know, of what it's like taking care of patients and families with atopic dermatitis at this time of processing of these fairly new drugs and new drugs coming. Is it, is it making it easier? Is it a challenge? Um, where do you think you're at? So who wants to go first? Okay, Fernando. All right. So I think uh, personally, I think it's really an exciting time uh, as a trainee to be in the pediatric dermatology field. I think things are evolving quite rapidly. And uh, I wouldn't look at it exactly as a confusion uh, standpoint. I would look at it as a diverse variety of options. So we can go and be more tailor-specific, uh, do more precision medicine, and uh, specifically address the needs of uh, specific patients, quite diverse around age groups and races. And I think uh, that's quite exciting uh, for me. Manisha, your thoughts? I think it's an exciting time for patients with atopic dermatitis. I would love uh, for us to have as many drugs as we have for pediatric psoriasis available for our pediatric AD patients. And I hope in the future we will have more agents available to them. And Tina? Personally, I'm most excited about what Dr. Gutman talked about, um, the potential for disease-modifying treatments for changing the trajectory of these diseases, maybe not continuing down the atopic march or, you know, um, little children who never go on to develop adult disease. From a big picture standpoint, you know, what we reviewed tonight, we have this new set of medicines, topical and systemic, that are coming through. They're coming through now, some sequenced adult first, then we'll get them to the adolescents and hopefully younger. Others where the adolescents will put in at the same time. We have a lot of potential in the future for other medicines coming as well, but we're figuring out where in practice that we put them, how we use them, how we sequence them. And that'll be a mixture of our us in the room with patients and families and then each other using sessions such as this as well as our communal research to figure out what are the right things to do when and also when we do these things and we do our treatments how is it going to change the overall course of the life of the patient and the family of the affected individual uh, i thank pedra for putting together such a, a podcast and panel because pedra does sit really to help us in the world of pediatric dermatology um, uh, promoting our uh, our research that's going to bring new ideas and innovations and best practices to uh, help us to take care of patients and their families. So I thank, uh, I thank our whole panel. Thank you guys so much for uh, contributing and hope the podcast was useful to everyone. Thank you so much to our host, Dr. Eichenfeld, and to our panelists, Dr. Gutman, Dr. Heath, and Dr. Liu. I would also like to thank our studio audience fellows, Dr. Tina Ho, Dr. Manisha Note, and Dr. Fernando Sanchez. Thank you all so much for joining Pedra for this podcast. I would also like to thank our program sponsor, Pfizer, for supporting this program. Pedra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. If you liked this podcast and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe to Pedra Pearls in iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. You can also check out our two other podcast shows, Getting to Know You and Community Spotlight. For more educational content, head on over to www.pedraresearch.org forward slash education.